Open your Bibles with me. John chapter 8. Get John chapter 8 and Acts 22. This morning, I want to speak on um, liberty, the surprising roots of American liberty. Next week is Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, we have people that are fighting for our liberty around the world. Uh, we, I know that uh, Josh is in um, Jordan right now. Where is Tristan based right now? He's in Arizona right now. Who else do we have that I'm missing? Any of our other folks uh, in the military right now? Matt. Where is Matt based right now? Anybody know where he's stationed? He's in the Navy, yes. Yeah, he's in the Navy. He's in Chicago. So, you know, we have these people from our church that are doing that, many others that are from our church that have served throughout the years. And um, I know we have Dr. Ree who served in the Korean Army, you know, as a, one of our allies. And so when we think of liberty, one of the things that's difficult for us to comprehend is that there was ever a time in the United States or in America where we didn't have it. Is there anyone here who's never been free? Not if you're in the United States. If you've come from another country, it's possible you've come from a place that wasn't free. But all of us who have grown up in the United States, it's hard for us to even comprehend what it would be like not to have freedom. There's something that's called the curse of knowledge, and that is that it's, it's, it's very difficult what it's like, uh, it's very difficult to remember what it's like not to know something. And for us, we've always been free. Now, some of you young people, you think that you're not free because you live at home. I like the young, I like the young guy that said that uh, he was tired of being told what to do, so he joined the Marines. <laughs> that is, I think that is so funny. Oh, you know, we've been doing our series, Christianity 101, and we're continuing that this morning. And one of the foundations of Christianity is liberty. So look at John chapter 8. Look at verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. So a disciple of Christ is someone that continues in Jesus Christ's word. And then look at what it says in verse 32. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Look at Acts chapter 22. Look with me at verse 26. Um, well, let's look at verse 24. The chief captain commanded him, this is the Apostle Paul, to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging. They were going to beat him. And that scourging would be with a cat of nine tails. It would shred the flesh off of his body that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. So this was religious persecution from the Jews, and the Romans were going to enforce the persecution. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? You see, Paul was not only Jewish, but he was a Roman citizen, and as a Roman citizen, he had certain rights. So he appealed to the law for his protection, and look at what the passage says, verse 26. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. And let me just tell you something. The last thing any of those people wanted to do was violate a Roman citizen. Why? Because they would have the full wrath of the Roman Empire come down on their heads. And let me tell you something. That's the way it ought to be for the United States. United, United States citizens ought to be safe everywhere in the world 
because those nations, those despots, ought to fear the wrath of the United States of America. And I fear that that's not the case anymore. You know, Iran has American citizens held hostage. North Korea has American citizens that are being held hostage. That should not be. It should not be. But I digress. Let's continue. Then, verse 27, Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. And the chief captain answered, With great sum obtain I this freedom. So this captain had bought his liberty. He had paid for his freedom and became a Roman centurion. But look at what the Apostle Paul said. So verse 28 again, And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was free born. Jacob was born free. Dr. Ree was his doctor. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Grace Baptist Church. Lord, thank you for just the love that's here, the friendship that we have here. Lord, thank you for the testimony that this church has had for over 65 years. Father, thank you for the faithfulness of your workers here. Lord, most of all, though, thank you for dying on the cross to pay for our sin. Lord, thank you for the opportunity of gathering together and worshiping you in this place. So, Lord, now as we try to understand a little bit of the history of liberty that you've given us here and the sacrifice that your people have made for it, Lord, I pray that it's a time that um, edifies your people and glorifies you. And, Lord, I pray if there's someone here who's never come to know the liberty of being saved from their sins, Lord, I pray that they'll get that settled today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, liberty is the, the single most important thing. If you ask the average American, what's the best thing about being an American? They would say freedom. And the basis of our freedom is biblical liberty. Where did this concept come from? Oh, I want to back up and give my introduction on our Christianity 101. Um, you know, this series that we're doing, Christianity 101, it is just foundational understanding of what we believe. Uh, when I did a series on truth, an apologetics series a while back, the statement has been made that all religions are fundamentally the same. And I said, yes, they are, except for what they teach about sin, salvation, heaven, hell, the nature of God, the nature of man, nature of eternity, the nature of the church. Other than that, they agree completely. And so the basis for Christianity 101 is that outline, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, nature of God, nature of man, nature of the church. And this morning, we're going to begin looking at some of those concepts of the nature of the church, and that's a perfect time to talk about liberty and where that comes from. So the surprising roots of American liberty. In Leviticus 25.10, let's take a look at that. Look with me at Leviticus 25.10. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The Bible says, And ye shall hallow the fiftieth year. So this is the year of Jubilee. Ye shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim, what's that word? Liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. All right? So this is the first mention of liberty in the Bible. Now, what we are taught is that our founders here in the United States, 
that they learned the concepts of liberty from Blackstone's commentaries or from David Hume or from John Locke. And what they say is that Jefferson and Madison and these others, they learned about the concept of liberty from these humanists, not from Christianity, but from humanists. How many of you have heard someone say something like that? What's interesting about that is our foundational doctrines include these passages from the Scriptures that demonstrate that their understanding of liberty came from the Bible. So it's interesting that this passage was written in 1372 B.C. All right? Here's, I like this kind of stuff. Check this out. That's 3,004 years before John Locke was born. 3,000 years before John Locke was born there was a biblical understanding of what liberty is. We didn't get it from John Locke. How about David Hume? It was written 3,083 years before the birth of David Hume. It was written 3,115 years before the birth of Thomas Jefferson. We did not get the concept of liberty from men. The concept of liberty comes from God. And our founders understood that. We are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what our founders understood was because this liberty comes from God, government cannot take it away. Now, we all understand that, right? We understand that. But the Christians that came to the early colonies, the early settlers, that's not what they believed. So the liberty and freedom that we have did not come from the Puritans. It didn't come from the pilgrims. It didn't come from the Congregationalists. It came from the Baptists. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Liberty. So true liberty is the byproduct of seeking for truth in God's Word. Isn't that what Jesus Christ just said? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John chapter 8. You shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. Liberty is the byproduct of seeking for truth in God's word. In the book of Psalms, it says, I will walk at liberty for I seek thy precepts. I will walk at liberty for I seek their precepts. You know, there are a lot of people in the world that are living a debauched lifestyle. They're living in sin. They think they're free, but they're in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Bible says that they are taken captive at his will, Satan's will. They are captive. If you want to be truly free, that freedom, that liberty only comes through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free indeed. I'm glad that I'm free indeed. The other thing that I'm thankful for is that I didn't have to purchase my freedom at a great price. Like the Apostle Paul said, I was free born. Any of you here born in the United States? You were born free. Here's the thing, though. Do you know that every individual in the world is born free? They just live under despotic governments that undermine the liberty that God gave them when He created them. Every individual in the world is intended to be born free. But despotic governments take from men those inalienable rights that are granted to us by our Creator. Our freedom, our liberty comes from God, and that's why it cannot be infringed by the government. Here at Grace Baptist Church, we're tax-exempt. And there were a group of people in the 70s and 80s that fought against, and there's a small segment that's still doing it, they don't think that churches ought to apply for tax exemption, and that's because they don't understand the law. See, the government doesn't grant Grace Baptist Church tax exemption. The government recognizes that we are tax-exempt. How many of you recognize the difference in those two statements? 
The government doesn't grant to us. It's not the beneficial government saying, well, as long as you don't talk about politics, we'll let you have freedom. Where in the Constitution does the government have that authority? You see, we have our freedom, our liberty, our tax exemption because we are a church. And our government, our founders have always recognized that the government has no place in the church. But again, that's a Baptist principle. Now, how many of you here did not come, you did not grow up, you did not come from a Baptist background? Would you raise your hands? Okay, everybody, hold your hands up. Everybody look around. See, this is why this is important to teach. This is so people can know what's going on because most people don't have any idea, and I'm not saying that these folks don't, but people outside of here, they don't have any idea what it means to be a Baptist or where our freedoms come from in our country, and there's a reason for that. I may get into that in a minute. We'll see. Um, Baptists were uniquely suited to claim this promise, the promise of liberty, for the simple reason that they're people of the book. We're people of the book. And I'm going to talk about that here in a second. You can't be a Baptist without a Bible. Amen? You just can't be a Baptist. You can't come to Grace Baptist Church without a Bible because now this morning I'm not going verse by verse through a text. This is more of a topical message. But 99% of the time at Grace Baptist Church is turn your Bible here, turn your Bible there, turn your Bible here, turn your Bible... Because we, that's the only authority that we have is the Word of God. We'll talk about that some more here in a second. It's really important that we understand that the sole authority for a Baptist is the Word of God. That's vital, and you can't be a Baptist without a Bible. Here's where this becomes important. All through the history of the New Testament church, everywhere that Baptists went, they translated the Bible into the language of the people. So we believe that God has preserved His Word. Anybody here believe that God's preserved His Word? You can hold it in your hands. How did God preserve His Word? Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So Paul said that the church, that's a church like Grace Baptist, is the pillar and ground of the truth. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So the foundation of the Bible is the New Testament church. So what God did was He established churches all over the world. Everywhere those missionaries went planting churches, they translated the Bible into the language of the people. And through all of those Greek manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts, Aramaic manuscripts, but also the Syriac language, the old Latin language, and then into the different vernacular translations, whether it's Italian or German or Dutch or French, or all of these different languages, God preserved His Word all through the centuries so that we can hold it in our hands and it can be our authority. There is not one universal body on earth where God said, I will preserve my word through that. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church did not preserve the Bible for us. Right? Remember, for centuries, it was against the law to have a Bible. They would kill you if you had a Bible. The first English translation of the Bible into what would be considered modern English was William Tyndale around 1525. And they burned him at the stake in Belgium. They lured him there and they burned him at the stake. Why? Because it was against the law for people to have the Bible in their own language. So all of these groups that are hiding underground, worshiping in caves, running for their lives, they're copying the Bible so that they could grow. You can't, you can't know God without His Word. Amen? And you can't be a Baptist without our Bible. It's a soul, it, the, the Bible is our sole authority. So what is a Baptist? What is a Baptist? We use this Baptist acrostic. 
The first, the B, is the Bible is our sole authority. You know, there, is, there are no outside documents that control Grace Baptist Church. There is no hierarchy. There is no... So I am the Bishop of Sydney. You know, the Bible says, yes, I'm Bishop Alter. That's, you know, you have... Those of you who aren't from here, there's Bishop Alter. It's a school in uh, Dayton. Um, Bishop is one of the titles for the pastor. But what we have at Grace Baptist Church is I'm the pastor and we have the church. I feel like Jesse Waters. This is Grace Baptist Church. And what we have here at Grace Baptist Church is an autonomous body that is self-governing. So if I stand up and I start preaching false doctrine, Dan New and Doug Schmidt-Meyer and you know, Patrick Kennedy and Nathaniel Tennant and Bob Curlis and Harry Starnes, these guys are going to stand up and they're going to stop it. Amen, guys? Ask your wife if you can say amen to that, guys. Just to... You guys are going to stop that, right? Amen. And so... It's really important that we understand that's what an autonomous body is. The Bible is our sole authority. And as your pastor, what I preach has to agree with this. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. The Bible is our sole authority. The Bible says in the book of First Peter that God has given us everything that we need for uh, godliness, for faith and godliness, life and godliness. He's given us everything that we need, and it's right here in the Word of God. The Bible is our sole authority. What does that mean? We don't hold to creeds. We're not creedalists. We're biblicists. We don't hold to church councils, right? It, it is a, it, I'm always amazed. In the Bible, when someone is taking counsel, it is always against God's people and God's work. And yet you have these church councils... That some of the things they did were good. Much of what they did was awful. So the authority for Grace Baptist Church is not creeds. It's not councils. It is the Word of God. There's no outside or, or there's no outside organization that is an authority over us. There's no archbishop. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the shepherd and bishop of our souls. If someone is an archbishop, that's a position a step higher than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no archbishops in the Bible. There is no authority outside of the local church. The Bible is the sole authority for everything that's done here at Grace Baptist Church. Everything. That's what a Baptist is. The Bible is our sole authority. And then, the autonomy of the local church. The A, the autonomy of the local church. That is that we are self-governing. Autonomous means we are self-governing. There is no outside authority. We have the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean we're unaccountable. We're going to stand before God and give an account for what we've done in this place. I'm accountable to you. Accountability is vital. If I preach something that is not according to the Word of God, or if I behave in a way that brings reproach on the name of Christ and Grace Baptist Church, you hold me accountable. Amen? It's very important that we understand that. So we are not um, licentious. We're not libertines. We don't believe that anything goes. What we believe, though, is that this church is structured and ordered under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Colossians 1.18. He is the head of all things pertaining to the church. He is the head. There's no substitute for Christ on earth. Jesus Christ is the head of the body. 
And Grace Baptist Church is a visible expression of that body in this world. So Jesus Christ is the authority. And we submit to that authority through the Word of God. So it is an autonomous church. The Bible is our sole authority, the autonomy of the local church. And then the P is the priesthood of the believer. The Bible says that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. The Bible says in 1 Timothy, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is our high priest, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest is Jesus Christ. Every believer is a priest. What is a priest? A priest is a person that's authorized to perform Spiritual rights. And what is the spiritual right that every believer can do? Every believer has access to the throne of God in prayer. Amen. You know what that next verse is after we have that high priest? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Do you know what that means? That means that Abby can pray for Megan. That's good stuff, isn't it? We are priests. Every saved person is a priest. Do you know what that means? That means that you don't confess your sin to me. Amen? Like I said, I think it was in Sunday school last week. Bob Curlis told me he was a Michigan fan. I told him, don't confess your sin to me. <laughs> the Bible says, confess your faults one to another. What's that? Folks, I am terrible at remembering names. So if I forget your name, please don't think that I don't care about you. I was on a date one time in college, went to introduce the girl and couldn't remember her name. That relationship did not last. <laughs> That's a fault. I can remember what happened in 1392, but I can't remember somebody's name that I just met. I don't understand it. I don't know why God did that to me. I, I'm just lousy at remembering names. What's that? I'm confessing a fault. I'm confessing a fault. Folks, sometimes I get impatient. How many of you have ever noticed that Pastor Jim is impatient? Any of you ever noticed that? Yes, that's a fault. So if, if I happen to be impatient around you, it's not your fault. That's me. It's not that which enters into a man that defiles a man. It's that which proceeds out of the man that defiles the man. That's confessing your faults. You don't confess your sin to me. You take your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, and He cleanses it. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the God that we worship. That's the priesthood of the believer. Then, two ordinances. There are not sacraments. Sacraments imply that when you perform this rite, God gives you grace. Well, that violates the very word grace. The word grace means gift. You can't work for a gift. Amen? You can't work for a gift. You can't earn it. So we're not sacerdotalists. We don't believe in sacraments. There are two ordinances. An ordinance is something that is ordered by the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are baptism in the Lord's Supper. And you don't get saved through baptism. You don't get saved or receive grace through the Lord's Supper. They are commemorative. When you get baptized, that's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It identifies you with the Lord Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection. It identifies you with the local New Testament church, and it identifies you with the doctrine that church teaches. It identifies. It's a picture. The Lord's Supper. As often as you do drink this cup and eat this bread, you do show the Lord's death till He come. Till He comes. It is a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us in the Lord's Supper. So, baptism get you into the church, the Lord's Supper is disciplinary, and every man examine himself. If a person's not living right, they can't take the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll go into some of that more in more detail at another time. But there are only two ordinances. They're not sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then the I is individual soul liberty, individual soul liberty. This one is vital in the subject of liberty, and that's interesting because the word liberty is in this phrase, individual soul liberty. What does that mean? It means you can't make anybody believe anything. 
If you require someone to believe something, all you do is make a hypocrite. Right? So that is an old saying, uh, persecution makes hypocrites of us all. So this idea of individual soul liberty is this. Every man is a free moral agent before God. The Bible says that we all are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says we're either going to be at the great white throne judgment or we're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is for saved people. And saved people are judged according to their work of what sort it is. And that is the work that you do for the Lord. And you either receive reward or you lose reward. The great white throne judgment, people are judged according to their works. And there's only one penalty that's given, and that is the lake of fire. You're either born again or you're lost. You're either saved or you're lost. If you're saved, you're going to stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. If you're not born again, you're going to stand before God at the great white throne judgment. All of us are going to give an account one way or another. That's the basis of individual soul liberty, that every man is a free moral agent before God. You've heard me give this illustration. The little boy, his dad said, I want you to sit down. The boy just looked at him. I don't want you to sit down. The boy just looked at him. Dad went over and sat him down. He looked over at his buddy and said, I'm still standing on the inside. What is that? That's a boy that needs the board of education applied to the seat of learning. Um... But what is that? That's a demonstration of individual soul liberty. You can, you can force behavior. You can never force belief. And that's why we persuade our young people. We show them the gospel. We pray that the Holy Spirit will convict their hearts and that they'll come to a place where they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that they're a sinner in need of hell and they must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. That is individual soul liberty. You can't make someone believe something. And so what comes from that is this. Separation of church and state. Oh, I forgot my period there at the S. Separation of church and state. Now, how many of you have heard separation of church and state? That phrase is not in the Constitution. How many of you have heard that? It's not in the Constitution. It came from a guy named Roger Williams. Roger Williams said that there's a hedge or a wall of separation of church and state. And Thomas Jefferson, in his letter of, I think, 1801 to the Danbury Baptist Association, he quoted Roger Williams the Baptist to the Danbury Baptist Association. And in 1948, when the Supreme Court ruled that you can't have prayer in schools and all of those things, they used the letter that Jefferson had written rather than the Constitution. And what, what Jefferson meant by separation of church and state was this. The Baptists had heard that there was going to be a state church again in the United States. And I'll explain that here in a second. But they had heard a rumor that, that there was going to be a national church. The reason that the Baptists didn't want that to happen was whenever there has been a national church, the Baptists have been persecuted. So the Danbury Baptist Association wrote a letter to President Jefferson saying, we've heard that this is the case. And he said, you don't have to worry about that. There's a wall of separation between the church and the state. So what that was is there's not going to be an official state denomination. It's not going to be the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church or the Presbyterian Church is the national church or even the Baptist Church. In Virginia, Patrick Henry actually worked to have uh, the taxes go to pay for Baptist preachers. And the Baptist preachers fought against it because they said the, the church supports the church. The government doesn't fund the church. You can't, re, you can't take money from someone and have them fund something that violates their beliefs, right. unless it's a public school, but that's another subject. 
Now, it's really important that we get this. This separation of church and state does not mean that Christians can't have a voice in government. So he wrote that letter on a Friday, Jefferson, and on Sunday he went to hear his friend, the Baptist preacher, John Leland, preach a sermon at the federal building, the treasury building. They were having a church service in the treasury building. So apparently Thomas Jefferson's understanding of separation of church and state is not what the Supreme Court came down in 1948 and then again in 1961. Those people are just wrong about it. But here's the problem. This, this is really important that we get this. We as believers, we got to make sure that we don't call for government involvement in religion. You know, there's a big problem. The religious right, they think, here's the problem in the world. There's not enough laws. When if they have the right to make laws against your enemies, then they'll also have the right for your enemies to make laws against you. So what we need to do is allow everyone to do whatever is right in their own conscience as long as it does not violate someone else's rights. That's the foundation of our country. Amen? That is the foundation of our country. And so we have to make sure that we understand that individual soul liberty leads to a separation of church and state. Separation of church and state is the idea that there is no established government church because every time you have that, there's despotism involved in it. Separation of church and state. Two offices, pastor and a deacon, not archbishop, bishop, pope, whatever. Pastor and deacon, that's all you have in the Bible. And then a saved church membership. I have Baptists. You can't be a member of a Baptist church without being born again. Right Now, that may seem to you, well, duh. Well, let me ask you this. Does baptism save you? No. How many of you know someone or you yourself were baptized as a baby? What did you think about that at the time? Nothing, right? And so what happens is when those babies are baptized into a Presbyterian church, a Lutheran church, a Catholic church, they become a member of that church. So what is that? That is a, an unsaved church member. Now, if you're from a Catholic church, Presbyterian church, Methodist church, whatever, as I say this, please don't be offended. That's just the, that's just the truth, right? Facts are stubborn things. It's just That's the fact. To be a Baptist, when you're a Baptist, then you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You place your, you place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And then you publicly profess that faith in baptism, and that's how you become a member of a Baptist church. So a saved church membership, these, these, this Baptist acrostic, these are things that make us distinct from every other Christian denomination. Every person that's a Christian believes in the virgin birth, the vicarious atonement, that is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. They all believe in miracles of the Bible. They believe in the return of Jesus Christ. They believe in the authority of Scripture. Every person that's a Christian, you have to believe in those things to even be called a Christian. Amen? If you don't believe in in the Trinity, in the Godhead, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. So we're not saying that you have to be a Christian, that only people who believe these things are Christians. That's not what we're saying. Every Christian believes those things I just mentioned. Baptists are distinct from these other denominations in that they believe in the Bible as their sole authority, not creeds, councils, or organizations. They believe in the autonomy of the local church, no outside authority. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. We don't confess our sins to some priest. Every Christian is a priest. We believe in the two uh, ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they're not sacramental. We believe in individual soul liberty, that every person is a free moral agent before God, and you cannot force anyone to believe anything. We believe in separation of church and state, that the government should never impose religion on anyone. 
We believe in uh, the, the two offices, the pastor and the deacon, and we believe in a saved church membership. This is what makes a Baptist church distinct. So if you're here and you've ever wondered, what is different about Grace Baptist Church and, say, another church in town? Uh, so another church in town, people are preaching the gospel. They're getting saved. Praise God for that. We're for that. Amen? I love it. We're going to be in heaven together. And we'll all be Baptists then. But we're going to be in heaven together. But here's the thing. All, everything that I have just stated is expressly taught in the Bible. You have to have some other influence to believe in infant baptism. You have to have some other influence to believe in confessing your sin to a priest outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to have something outside of the Bible to teach those things. All of our beliefs come straight from the Scriptures. All right? Now, let's look at the concept of liberty versus toleration. During the last election, Hillary Clinton said that she believes in religious toleration. Well, good for you. I believe in religious liberty. Toleration means that the government tolerates it. If we have religious toleration, then we believe that the government can tolerate us until they don't. Is that different than liberty? So this is really important. This is from Noah Webster, 1828. Civil liberty is the liberty of men in a state of society or natural liberty, so far only abridged and restrained as is necessary and expedient for the safety and interest of the society, state, or nation. A restraint of natural liberty, not necessary or expedient for the public, is tyranny or oppression. Civil liberty is an exemption from the arbitrary will of others. All right, so that means that I ought to be able to build on my property whatever in the world I want to build on my property. Amen? How many of you can do that now? No, see, that's a violation of civil liberty. All right, right, so let's go on. Which exemption is secured by established laws which restrain every man from injuring or controlling another? Hence, the restraints of law are essential to civil liberty. So here's the idea. My freedom to swing my my fist ends where your face begins. Right? I can swing and do whatever I want to until someone is nearby. And then it becomes a crime. It's assault. You see? So liberty can be restrained when when my liberty causes the injury to someone else. It's almost like the Bible says that. The Bible says don't use your liberty as an offense to somebody else. Isn't that amazing? So all of that is based on the Scriptures. So that's civil liberty. Let's look at uh, religious liberty. Again, Noah Webster, 1828. Religious liberty is the free right of adopting and enjoying opinions on religious subjects and of worshiping the supreme being according to the dictates of conscience without external control. That's it. You can believe or not believe. That's, That's between you and God. Government can't do anything about that. And the way that that's divided is the first table of the law and the second table of the law. So you have the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Um, thou Thou shalt not commit adultery. All of that type of thing. That's the relationship between man and God. Right? That's the relationship between man and God. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Perjury. That can be enforced. That's man's relationship between man and man. And we require law to do that. So at the dispensation of human government, after the flood, when Noah and his sons come off the ark, that's when God says, if man sheds blood, by man shall blood be be spilled. 
That's where God established human government in the world. And so human government governs man's relationship with man. Spiritual law governs God's relationship between man and God. And the government cannot order or, or command the first table of the law. That's what Webster is talking about here. In 1612, some Christians had come back from Holland. They'd been persecuted in England. And a man named Thomas Helvis, he came and started a church in Spitalfields in London in 1612. And he wrote this book. It's a short declaration of the mystery of iniquity. And you can barely see it at the bottom. This was written in 1812. I saw this at uh, the Regent's Park College in Oxford. It's a Baptist, old Baptist college there. There's only five copies of this known in the world. So Thomas Elvis came and started the church, wrote this book about religious liberty, and King James had him put in Newgate Prison, and he died there because there was no religious liberty. The king, remember the act of supremacy, that's where Henry VIII took over the church, kicked the bishops out, destroyed the monasteries and the convents, and became the head of the church, and now the king was the head of the church, act of supremacy. Then you had the act of uniformity. Everybody had to believe in England whatever the king believed. And so when Helvis wrote this, King James had him imprisoned and he was killed. He died. Leonard Busher in 1614, he was another Baptist. He wrote this, To the high and mighty King James, by the grace of God, King of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, and to the princely and right honorable Parliament. Leonard Busher wisheth the wisdom of Solomon, the zeal of Josias, and the mercy of Christ, with the salvation of your spirits in the day of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5.5 Forasmuch as your majesty and parliament do stand for the maintenance of the religion wherein you are born, and for the same do most zealously persecute with fire and sword, I have thought it good, and also my duty, most royal sovereign, to inform your majesty and parliament thereof, in all humility, therefore, I give you to understand that no prince or people can possibly attain that one true religion of the gospel, which is acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, merely by birth. You must be born again. Amen? You can't be born into a religion. So what he's talking about there, this is 1614, that mystery of iniquity is the first document that we have in the English language fighting for religious liberty. The second is this by Leonard Busher. And Busher, again, he died in obscurity. He wasn't able to live the way that he would like to because he was under the authority of the king and of the Anglican church. All right? Then the pilgrims come to the United States. How many of you have heard that? The pilgrims come to the colonies. Land at Plymouth Rock. Massachusetts Bay Colony is started. Plymouth, is started. Plymouth Colony is started. And in those days, whatever the religion of the colony was, you had to believe that or be banished. And so we hear this idea that people came to the colonies for religious liberty, and they did, but they didn't come to give that religious liberty to others because they were under this Calvinistic reformed system. Remember, John Calvin was a despot who would have killed you and me. You need to understand that. John Calvin would have, me especially, he, he would have killed me. And so I'm not a big fan of John Calvin. Um, this is a reprint, it's a facsimile of the Laws and Liberties of Massachusetts. And this is from 1647, I believe. Let me make sure. 1647. And so it gives, this is uh, the book of the general laws and liberties concerning, and it goes on. One of the first entries is on Anabaptists. So Anabaptists, that is, Anna is re-Baptist. So we have always been 
um, criticized because if somebody's baptized as a baby, when they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll baptize them. Amen? Because baptism follows salvation in the Scriptures. That's what we do. So we've been called Anabaptists. So this is in the laws and liberties of Massachusetts. Listen to what it says. For as much as experience hath plentifully and often proved that since the first arising of the Anabaptists about a hundred years past, so that's uh, among the Protestants, they began arising at the beginning of the Reformation. So they had already existed. They just came out of their holes in their caves during that time. And so 1647, they're saying at least 1547, the Baptists were a part of Europe. All right. For as much as experience hath plentifully and often proved that since the first arising of the Anabaptists about a hundred years past, they have been the incendiaries of commonwealths and the infectors of persons in main matters of religion and the troublers of churches in most places where they have been. In other words, Baptists always cause trouble in false teaching in churches that have false teaching. Amen? Don't be quiet. If you're in a place they're teaching false doctrine, say, uh, excuse me, that's not true. That's wrong. That's false. The Bible says this. Let God be true and every man a liar. Amen? That's what Baptists have always done. All right. Uh, then it says they've been troublers of churches in most places where they have been, and that they who have held the baptizing of infants unlawful have usually held other errors or heresies together therewith. Though as heretics used to do, they have concealed the same until they espied a fit advantage and opportunity to vent them by way of question or scruple. And whereas divers of this kind have, since our coming into New England, appeared amongst ourselves, they came over, some of them came over on the Mayflower, so they've come to New England, appeared amongst ourselves, some whereof, as others before them, have denied the ordinance of magistracy, and that is that the church has authority over government, and that the lawfulness of making war, so you, the idea was they these Anabaptists, they didn't believe that the government could force them to kill someone for religion's sake. All right? So that's what they would fight against, the lawfulness of making war. Others, the lawfulness of magistrates and their inspection into any breach of the first table. So your religion. Baptists fought against that. This is in the law in Massachusetts, 1647. The first table, which opinions are connived at... Uh, which opinions, if connived at by us are like to increase among us and to necessarily bring guilt upon us, infection and trouble to churches and hazard to the whole commonwealth. It is therefore ordered by this court and authority thereof that if any person or persons within this jurisdiction shall either openly condemn or oppose the baptizing of infants or go about secretly to seduce others from the approbation or use thereof or shall purposely depart the congregation at the administration of that ordinance. So if, you know, if you're going to church and they're about to baptize a baby, you get up and leave because you don't believe in it. That's against the law. You have to sit and watch that, that baptism. Um, or shall deny the ordinance of magistracy or their lawful right to make war or to punish the outward breaches of the first table, if you disagree with that, and shall appear to the court willfully and obstinately to continue therein after due means of conviction. It could be after being beaten, after having everything taken from you. That's due means of persuasion. After means of conviction, every such person or persons shall be sent sentenced to banishment. Now, what is banishment? Now, imagine if you were kicked out of Sydney. What would you do? You'd live in Piqua. Right? You'd live in Anna. You're kicked out of Sydney. Remember, there's no civilization. If you're kicked out, you're out into the wilderness with no support, nothing. And not only do they banish you, they disfranchise you. That means they take everything from you. 
all your property. You leave either naked or with the clothes on your back. They would put people out in boats completely naked out into the wilderness. Does that sound very Christ-like to you? No, that's people like John Cotton and William Bradford. All those great names that you've heard, they would have killed us. So they, when Obadiah Holmes in 1651, he comes with John Clark, John Crandall to minister to William Witter, they were arrested for doing that. And it's a long story. We have the painting of it in our chapel. But he was beaten so badly he had to sleep. It said that they thought that the, that the person executing the, the beating was trying to kill him. And he had to sleep on his knees and elbows for three months. That's how badly. It was said that his back looked like jelly. Why? Because he didn't believe what the state church taught. There was a man named Henry Dunster who witnessed that. And he, he witnessed Obadiah Holmes' defense from the scriptures at the trial. And he was the first president of Harvard University. And Dunster, he went and he searched the scriptures. What does the Bible say about baptism? What does the Bible say about the church? And he refused to bring his daughter to be baptized as an infant. And so he was disfranchised. They took his 110 acres, and that is what Harvard University is today. It was land taken from Henry Dunster, a man who became a Baptist preacher. And he is still identified as the first president of Harvard University. When on our Baptist history trip... We went to, this is the, the grave of Joshua Morris. Joshua Morris lived from 1725 to 1795. And let me read what happened with Joshua Morris. This is from David Benedict. This is his history of the Baptists in New England from 1813. Joshua Morris was in his day a very eminent preacher among the Baptists in New England. He was born in South Kensington, Rhode Island in 1726. His grandfather came from the west of England to Rhode Island in the early part of the settlement of that colony. Um, when the Great Awakening happened, people were actually receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And how many of you know that when you, when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, something happens in you? Right? And so those church services were different than the old established church services because people are born again. You know that eating a piece of bread or drinking some wine doesn't save you. How many of you know that? Right? And so these people were called new lights. And so he, when the zealous new lights began to make a noise in the neighborhood, he and others were ready to reproach and despise them. But the very first meeting he attended, his mind was arrested. When he first entered it, he saw them so zealously affected that he hesitated not to say that they were all deluded. But he came away under fearful apprehensions of being made miserable forever. So here's what he did. He went into that church service. He was going in to mess it up. He's going to go mess with people as a hooligan. And he saw them praying and worshiping, and their faith was so strong, he left thinking he was going to hell. And if he hadn't received Jesus Christ, he would have gone to hell. So he got saved. And so he started preaching. Uh, the early and indeed the greatest part of his ministry was spent in Connecticut. He first began preaching in Stonington, where he was much oppressed, opposed, abused, and persecuted by a set of bigoted gentry who declared that his preaching was not according to law. So in Connecticut in the 1700s. So listen to what happened. At that time, every man who opened his doors for a dissenter to preach was liable to be found five pounds. That's five pounds of silver. The preacher was subject to a fine of ten shillings and every hearer to five. The very first time Mr. Morse preached in Stonington, he was apprehended, carried before a magistrate, sentenced to pay the ten shillings or be whipped ten lashes at the public whipping post for preaching. They were going to whip him. Then, 
says this, the fine he could not pay, and of course the lashes he was preparing to receive. He was taken to the post by the order of the magistrate, but the constable, instead of inflicting the lashes, pled the cause of the innocent sufferer, the cruelty of the court, the, and utterly refused performing the barbarous duty which he had assigned him. Do you know what I love about that? Do you know you law enforcement officers, if there's an unjust law, you don't have to execute it. Amen? The Bible says that the, that governor, that the government, they're ministers of righteousness. And this constable said, I don't care what the court says. I'm not going to beat this man for preaching the gospel. So finally, they wouldn't do anything. Look at what happens. The magistrate, uh, let's see, after spending some time in this awkward position, the constable tendered the magistrate from his own pocket the fine which had been exacted. So the guy that's supposed to beat the guy pulled the money out of his pocket and paid his fine. The magistrate, probably ashamed of his conduct, offered it to Mr. Morse. And bid him receive it and go peaceably away. But as he would pay no money, so he would receive none. And his persecutors, finding him rather unmanageable, went off and left him to take his own course. For a number of years after this, he was often opposed, sometimes by law, but more frequently by mobs. His preaching was attended with much success, and that encouraged him and enraged his opposers. In one of his meetings, one of the reverend gentlemen of the town, a preacher came in just as he was beginning his sermon and put his hand on his mouth and then bid a brother whom he had brought with him to strike him. At another time, a man came in while he was preaching and struck him with such violence on his temple that it brought him to the floor. Can you imagine? I'm up here preaching and somebody comes in and, and starts beating me in the pulpit. Now, some of you might want to do that, but I know that you wouldn't let anyone else do it to me. I, I, I can't. It's just a different world, isn't it? So it says this. When he rose, so he was hit on the temple, knocked to the floor. When he arose, he looked on his persecutor and with emotions of pity said, If you die a natural death, the Lord hath not spoken by me. This man not long after went to sea and fell from the vessel and was drowned. At another meeting, he was knocked down while in prayer. Listen to this. He was then seized by the hair, dragged out of the house, down the steps to the ground, and was so deeply bruised in his head and face that he carried some of the scars to his grave. Joshua Morse. That was in Connecticut. That's in the 1750s. When was the revolution? 1776. That's what the world was like at the time of the revolution. So Joshua Morris, he fought. He went into the Revolutionary War, fought for his country. Asa Hill Morris, his son, Baptist preacher in Connecticut. Do you know what happened with him in 1821? 1818 to 1821? He wrote the article on religious liberty for the Connecticut State Constitution. Because it was against the law to be a Baptist there, even after the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. We needed the First Amendment to happen, and then these states could start allowing preachers to preach. So this is the grave of Joshua Morris, and the reason I have a picture there with Jacob is we went there for the first time a couple of years ago, and I didn't know that Joshua Morris was buried there. So on the grounds of this is a Christian camp, and it's where I was saved when I was 15 years old, New England Keswick Camp here in Massachusetts. Isn't that an amazing thing? So it's almost like God knew what I was going to be doing with my life. And there's Joshua Morse, the great Baptist preacher buried there. This is the grave of Isaac Bacchus. Isaac Bacchus is one of the fathers of religious liberty in America. He wrote a sermon in 1773 that helped prompt the revolution. It was called An Appeal to the Public for Religious Liberty Against the Oppressions of the Present Day. 
and I don't have time to read it to you this morning, but what he's doing is he's saying that these Christians are destroying other Christians because they're not a part of the state church. And so in 1774, this is 1773 that that was written. In 1774, he went to the First Continental Congress that met at Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia. And he, so it's, it's Isaac Backus and the president of Brown University, it was then the Baptist College of Rhode Island, James Manning, and others, they, John Ganneau, they went and petitioned that early Congress. And John Adams refused them. John Adams said, he argued that it was against the consciences of the people of his state, that's Massachusetts, to make any change in their laws about religion, even though others might have to suffer in their estates or by imprisonment to satisfy Mr. Adams and his conscientious friends. And he declared that they might as well think that they could change the movement of the heavenly bodies as alter the religious laws of Massachusetts. See, John Adams was not for religious liberty. Where did that come from? It came from the Baptists. Why did Isaac Backus care about it? I don't have the time to read it, but I've got this book by Frederick Dennison, and in it is a letter from Isaac Backus's mother to him from prison. She was imprisoned in Norwich, Connecticut for refusing to pay tithes to the Congregational Church. So they came in the middle of the night and took this little old lady and put her in prison with no heat, no fire, miserable. Can you imagine getting a letter from your mother that she's in prison because she won't pay support to the congregational church? You see, the foundation of religious liberty in America, it is a purely Baptist doctrine. And that came after the revolution. In the revolution, they made up about 15% of the population of the colonies. 40% of the, the chaplains were uh, Baptists. And I've told you that before. But you need to understand that the First Amendment which grants us religious liberty, or as we would say, recognizes that God has given to us religious liberty, that came because James Madison, the author of the Constitution, met in Orange County, Virginia, with John Leland, the Baptist preacher, the friend of Thomas Jefferson, and persuaded, Leland persuaded Madison that this was necessary. And Madison promised Leland, the Baptist, that if he would, uh, could see fit, to endorse Madison to his other preachers and send them to the Virginia Constitutional Convention that their first order of business after ratification of the Constitution would be a religious liberty amendment. That religious liberty amendment is a Baptist article. And so here's the deal. It's not only for Baptists. That means Pentecostals and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and, and Hindus and atheists and everyone. We can all live together in peace because every man is free to worship or to not worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. And that makes us free to preach the gospel anywhere we choose to because it's the preaching of the gospel that leads people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And if people are forced, they can't believe. If they're free to believe or reject as a free moral agent before God, they can say, yes, I'll believe the gospel, or no, I'll reject the gospel. But that liberty, that's what makes us free to preach the gospel. We can never allow the government to oppress us or to suppress our freedom to preach the gospel. So here's what you young people need to know. You are free to pass out tracts. You're free to talk about Jesus Christ. You're free to, to speak up in class, respectfully raise your hand, and tell the truth. And if someone ever tells you you can't read your Bible at school, you call me, we'll call lawyers, and we will sue the school district, and we win every time. 
because you have complete freedom of worship and freedom of speech wherever you go. Amen? We need to know that and that we have power in this community and in these schools because we have the Constitution of the United States which is based on the Word of God and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can stand, we can speak, we can preach, we can live, and we can be free because of what we've had, not only from the Word of God, but from history and from the Constitution of the United States. Teachers, don't be cowed. I appreciate your faithfulness in these schools. Speak the truth. If a child asks you publicly a question, do you know what you get to do? You get to answer that question. Amen? It is so cool. Mrs. Hollinger, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross. He's the only way to heaven. You can preach the whole gospel. You're completely free to do that. And here's the deal. If an administrator, and here's the deal. We have some great administrators that would not cause you trouble. But if you have an administrator that causes you trouble, just let us know. We have lawyers on hold. Ready? Because what did the Apostle Paul do? Uh, are you, is it lawful? For you to scourge a Roman citizen? Is it lawful for you to silence an American citizen? Amen? Amen. We have freedom. We have liberty. Let's celebrate it. Let's stop being timid. Let's stop being cowed. If someone shows something that is inappropriate at your school, stand up and stop it! We have freedom. We do not have to be debauched by the government. We can stand for truth. We can stand for righteousness. We can stand for justice according to the Word of God. Amen? Amen. And here's what I love. We have a church that will do that. I feel sorry for the guy that comes in and tries to attack me in this pulpit. Well, we got 15 women that would shoot him before he got down the aisle. Why? Because we're free to do that. Amen? We are free to do that. Praise His holy name. But remember, the most important liberty is the liberty that comes from placing your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Are you saved today? If you died today, are you sure? If one of our ladies shot you today, are you sure <laughs> that you're going to heaven? Are you sure? I hope you are. If you're not, we can take the Bible and show you. Amen? How many of you know how to take the Bible and show somebody how to go to heaven? Would you raise your hands? Look around. If you're not saved, look at one of these people with their hand up. Walk up to them and say, I'm, I'm not sure that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. They'll take the Bible and show you. Isn't that awesome? Amen. Let's all stand together. Dear Heavenly Father, we sure don't deserve the liberty that you've given us.